Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station podcast, a 15 to 20 minute show about learning the Rust programming language. This is episode two, something borrowed, something moved. First up, a little bit of news from the Rust community. There was an interesting blog post I saw this week via the Rust Twitter account about the tool Rust FMT, that is Rust Format, which is a tool for formatting Rust code. In order to get this tool in really good shape, the authors of the tool are working on running it on the entire Rust language repository. Now, since Rust is implemented in Rust, this gives them a very, very good test case to make sure they can find all the bugs in Rust format, and it also means that over time, the Rust codebase will be brought up to more modern and current styles of how Rust is written, since obviously Rust has been in flux over time and style has evolved and so on. And this means that ultimately, if everything works as expected, it will be possible to run Rust format automatically on new pull requests to the Rust repository, which will make for nice standardization of code. Predecessors to this are available in other languages. You can see this especially with Go format, where the Go language has a standard tool so that all Go fits the same basic style approach. This is great. There is a discussion on Reddit as well as the original blog post, both of which I will link to in the write-up. If you want to jump in and get involved, this is a great low-friction way you can do that. You can run it on a given module in the Rust repository, and if things break in Rust format itself, you can then file issues, and if you know how to fix them, send pull requests to the repository for Rust format. Another thing that caught my attention this week, which is a little older, but still worth taking a look at because it's still in progress, is an open RFC for incremental compilation. Incremental compilation is a way of compiling not just the entire crate, not just an entire package of Rust code, but smaller chunks at a time. If you just change one module, recompile just that module. Right now, Rust compiles the entirety of a given crate all at a go. If you don't see the pain point in this because you've only been writing small packages so far, I would encourage you to go ahead and clone Rustlang itself and try building it. See how long it takes. If you make any changes, it takes a long, long time to rebuild. As such, if this RFC can come through, that would be great. That would get Rust on parity with a lot of other modern languages. For example, C and C++ have had incremental compilation support for a long time. So does Java. So do most other modern compiled languages. And there are reasons why it's hard in something like Rust, but nonetheless, it's a valuable goal. So that's also a great place to jump in. Now, a quick word about RFCs. Rust, like several other communities, approaches suggested changes to the language and tooling versus these RFCs, that is, requests for comment. And the way these work is people submit a pull request with a detailed proposal outlining a change to the language. The proposal needs to include trade-offs, a rough idea, well, a not-so-rough idea of how to implement the change, and what needs to be done to make it happen. The community then discusses this, works through it, and decides whether to accept it or not. If it gets accepted, then it gets implemented. What this does is mean that changes can be discussed thoroughly and possible trade-offs that authors of those changes might have seen don't get missed because other people in the community are able to follow them. And then this all becomes part of the public history of the project. 
You can find these in the RFC's repo on Rust's GitHub account, and you can see the discussion I mentioned above and the associated text for that RFC. Again, I'll have these linked in the show notes as one of the open RFCs for discussion. Now, with that news out of the way, let's jump into the show proper. Today, we're going to talk about one of Rust's core data types, the struct, and then we're going to talk about one of Rust's core concepts, ownership. Structs first. Why? Well, because data structures are fundamental, and a lot of the things we're going to do when we talk about ownership are going to involve data structures and not simply primitive types like integers and so on. So it's helpful to have some idea what the data types we're dealing with are. And indeed, data structures are one of the fundamental issues in any programming language. The kinds of structures you have and what they can do variously empower or limit you as you're approaching a programming language. And this is true of language constructs in general. For example, can you have standalone functions or do they have to belong to a class? In Java or C Sharp, all functions have to belong to a class, even if they're quote-unquote static methods that don't refer to the details of that class's implementation, they nonetheless have to belong to a class. By contrast, many other languages let you have functions that stand alone and operate on their own and don't have to belong to a class. Python, Ruby, C, C++ for that matter. This gives you very different outcomes in terms of how you structure your programs and how pieces of your programs have to relate to each other. Another question, if you have complex data structures like structs, can you associate behavior with them? For example, classes in classical languages like C++ or Java have the ability to fairly straightforwardly associate behavior with any given data type. You can associate a method with an object so that that method can know something about the internals. It can know that it's attached to a given instance of an object or, in fact, that it's not dealing with object instances and so on. And then finally, how do they relate to each other? For example, in those classically typed languages, you have what we call classical inheritance, and you might have multiple inheritance, so that certain data types are related to other data types as children of them. They inherit everything that their parents have, and then they might add to that. You also have prototypal inheritance, as in JavaScript, where there is a prototype object and Everything not only inherits from that as in a classical sense, but if you update the prototype during runtime, all of the things that are cloned from it also get those changes. Then you also have concepts like mix-ins or traits where you can extend the functionality of a given data type with another definition of how behavior should work so that you can basically let your behaviors and your data structures be orthogonal to each other rather than having to ascend or descend in these lines of inheritance. Spoiler, Rust uses traits. It doesn't presently have inheritance, though you should know that classical inheritance is on the radar, it's something being worked on because, well, the Rust developers are pragmatic, and while they chose to implement traits first because they have a preference toward it, giving people other tools is useful as well. There are two basic type constructors in Rust, struct and enum. Today we're going to focus on the simpler of the two, structs. There are also tuples, and we'll come back to those in a later episode as well. 
Structs are relatively straightforward data types. You can associate any type of data with them. They're, in that sense, analogous to the struct type you might see in C or C++. However, you can also associate implementations with them. They can have behavior. So their members can be primitives. They can be other structs or tuples or enums. They can also have function members. The main differences you would see between a struct in Rust and a class in a language like C++ or Java or Python is that they don't have inheritance. Also, Rust doesn't make a distinction between headers and source files like you see in C++. Instead, Rust, like many other modern languages, chooses to use documentation tools like we talked about last week instead of trying to read header files to see the basics of how a given piece of data works. However, unlike Python, for example, the implementation is still separate from the definition. Implementations live in implementation blocks. Now, these implementation blocks, which are denoted by the keyword IMPL, short for implements, normally occur close to where the struct is defined. They don't have to be, and there's value to that, as we'll see when we start talking about traits. However, in the struct example associated with this episode, see the show notes, it's right next to it, and you'll find that this is pretty common. How do you use structs once you've created them? Well, you can access methods on the structs with double colon. That is, if you had a circle type, for example, and you wanted to create a new one and you had defined a new function on the circle type, you would simply type circle colon colon new and then the arguments to the method. Pretty straightforward. Once you have an instance, you can use dot notation for member access. So you might type circle dot r for radius. For an example of this, see the associated code in the E002 module of the show notes. Now that gives us a basic overview of structs. And now that we have that, we can talk a little bit about what happens when you want to use structs or enums or, for that matter, integers in Rust. One of the core concepts in Rust is ownership. And we care about ownership because of a core problem in languages that manage memory. And that is knowing the state of a given piece of data. And I said in languages that manage memory, but really it's any language we care about that. Someone has commented, shared mutable state is the root of all evil. And in programming problems, that's often true. This is why the hard rule we make against global variables exists. It's because when data can be updated almost anywhere, it makes it very difficult to reason about what the code is going to do or to find bugs when we've introduced them. And that problem is exacerbated when that shared mutable state might include pointers to actual locations in memory, and that's not obscured by the mechanics of the language, as it would be in a high-level language like Python. Rust addresses this problem via its concept of ownership, and this is one of the most distinctive things about the language. Here's how ownership plays out at the most basic level. You can have any number of immutable references to a given piece of data at a time. However, if you have any mutable reference to a data point, you can't have any other references to it because you don't know if the data will change under you. So you can have at most one mutable reference and no other references, including immutable references, because they would no longer be immutable. The data might change under them. Or you can have as many immutable references as you want. And that gives you safety. 
that means that you cannot change data without knowing expressly that it might be changed under you. And you know that if you have a reference to the data and that reference is immutable, it will never change under you. Now, there are qualifications to add to that and so on, and we'll come back to that in future episodes when we start talking about more complex data structures and more complex ways of managing memory. But at the most basic level, that's what Rust does. And it does this through its notion of borrowing and moving and enforces this at a compilation level via a compiler tool called the Borrow Checker. When you hand data around, say from one function to another, data can be borrowed or it can be moved. When you borrow data, you get a reference. This is not exactly the same as what you might mean if you were talking about references in C. There are some similarities under the covers, but it's not quite the same. In this case, it means that you don't own the data you're looking at. You just have access to it, perhaps mutably, perhaps immutably. But once you're done, control goes back to the caller who sent it to you in the first place. That caller still owns the data. If you have an immutable reference to it, you can look at the data on that piece that you've been handed. If you have a mutable reference, you can update it. But in either case, when you're done with it, control goes back to the owner and they can continue using it as they see fit. On the other hand, if data is moved when it's handed to a different function, that new function gets ownership. And that new function can do anything allowed by the mutability rules that come with that type. So if you pass it in mutably, you can change it however you want. If you pass it in immutably, it's still fixed. But now management of the memory associated with it belongs to the new function. And that point right there is really the key. Memory belongs to scopes in Rust. This is a concept borrowed from C++ called resource acquisition is initialization. And basically, when objects come into scope, all their memory gets initialized. When they go out of scope, it gets deinitialized and deallocated so that things get cleaned up automatically. In the case of Rust, references and borrowing and moving tie directly to that so that when you hand things to a new function, you can either borrow it, in which case it will continue to live after the new function returns, or you can move it, in which case once that new function returns, that object is gone. The memory is deallocated, and if you try to access it again from the original caller, it just won't work. Now, how do you use this? Well, much like you would in C or C++, you define and pass references using the ampersand character, and you can dereference things with the star operator, which lets you assign new values to the referenced element itself. Again, only for mutable references. Always, always only for mutable references. And that star operator does a bit more than that as well. We'll come back to that when we talk about traits in the future. When do moves happen? Well, they happen anytime you use non-reference types in function calls. This is a big difference from C. In C, you nearly always pass by value when it makes sense to. In Rust, you're often going to pass by reference instead, not because you need to change the contents of whatever you're passing, but because you don't want to move ownership. That's a significant detail worth remembering. And you can use the move keyword to specify that something should move in other contexts as well. More on that in a future episode when, frankly, I understand it better myself. So that's a basic overview of both structs and borrowing, of which you can see some pretty detailed examples in the show notes associated with this episode. I have walked through both 
mutability and immutability in the context of functions and structures and references to both and moving both in that code sample. So I commend that to you. Next time, we will talk about another data structure type. We will look at enums. And with those, we will look at the associated notion of pattern matching. Pattern matching is one of the most powerful concepts in Rust. That will also be a good in to talk about meaningful and safe return values, especially from functions which might fail. You can find the show notes that I've mentioned throughout the episode at neurastation.com. There I have, of course, all the implementation details, but also links to the content I mentioned earlier, to the Rust reference as appropriate, and to my social media accounts. Speaking of social media accounts, you can follow New Rust Station on Twitter or app.net, and you can follow me at Chris Kreitcho. If you like the show, I would hugely appreciate it if you rated and reviewed me on iTunes. That will help other would-be Rust Stations find the show. You can also support me at patreon.com slash newruststation. Thanks for listening, and until next time, happy coding. <laughs>